0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the Storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem as we present a special podcast about a ship that launched a nation. Everyone knows the poem about Helen of Troy, a.k.a. the face that launched a thousand ships. And in today's episode, will tell the lesser-known story of a ship that launched a country. In the background you hear Ernest Gold's Academy Award-winning music to the film, based on Murris' novel about the Exodus 1947. But before we get into the stuff of novels, let's remind ourselves of the historical context. When the British mandatory authority failed to stop illegal immigration to Palestine, the British instituted a naval blockade to curtail the floating Underground Railroad. They captured renegade ships, and forced their passengers into crowded, miserable displaced-person camps in Cyprus. And who were these illegal passengers? Survivors of the Holocaust, veterans of concentration camps, and subsequent DP camps in Germany, Poland, Italy, and Austria. Even with the liberation, their suffering would not be curtailed, from camp to camp without a proper roof over their heads. The conditions in Cyprus were deliberately harsh. As an incentive, the British rationalized To prevent others from attempting to smuggle themselves in. The incentive rationalization, to me at least, sounds absurd. Where else were they to go to? They were languishing in DP camps in Europe, and all they wanted was to go home to the country of their own in the land of Israel. As the British are doing everything possible to keep Jews out of Palestine, the Haganah, the Jewish settlement's clandestine army which transformed into the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, is doing everything possible to smuggle them in. In 1945, the head of the Jewish agency, David Ben-Gurion, who will later become Israel's first prime minister, met with Jewish businessmen in New York to support several projects, including a nautical plan to flood Israel with waves of immigrants with a floating underground railroad. This was to be coordinated by the Haganah. Nothing would bring more publicity and sympathy to the cause than the voyage of the illegal ship Exodus 1947. Haganah's mission of landing tens of thousands of illegal immigrants into Palestine was by any means possible. This will entail smuggling and guiding refugees over snow-capped mountains and later across sun-bleached deserts. To acquire the means to get Jews into Israel, Haganah agents were in the United States scouring for retired or ready-to-scrap ships to be used in breaking the British blockade. Although they had been dealing with small boats, they now set their sights higher and wider. In 1947, quite by accident, as these matters are often labeled, the Haganah agent stumbled across a dilapidated hulk of a steamship, the President Warfield, named after its original owner, Solomon Davies Warfield, who was the uncle of the Duchess of Windsor. Christened in 1928, the boat was drafted into battle, as were many civilian ships, in the Lend-Lease program to bring supplies to allies fighting the Nazis. Lend-Lease was the program that FDR had set into law which was to keep America neutral, yet supply warships and airplanes to the Allies in Free France and Britain and the Soviet Union and later other countries, and also to quell critics in America who wanted to keep America isolationist and not getting embroiled in a second war. To prepare for her active duty, the Warfield's once elegant interiors were gutted, obliterating any trace that she was once a luxury liner. The Warfield was also plated for better protection and painted a drab navy gray. Her deployment was adventuresome, as the convoy that she was part of was attacked by the dreaded German U-boats as it sailed across the North Atlantic. Many ships in the convoy were torpedoed and sank, but the Warfield managed to escape catastrophe when a torpedo just missed her hull by less than 50 feet. If you're having a hard time trying to perceive how close this is, It's significantly less than the distance between the pitcher's mound and home plate. That bunting distance is what separated the Warfield and a watery grave in the freezing North Atlantic. The Warfield docked in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and was then later stationed in southwest England, where she was converted into a barracks ship. The Warfield ended up playing a key role in the D-Day invasion off the shores of Normandy. This is Robert St. John in the NBC Newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, We may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Once again, she managed to avert attack, this time from the Luftwaffe, as she was anchored at Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach and Utah Beach are names that I imagine most of you are familiar with. The opening combat scenes in The Saving of Private Ryan depicts the catastrophic 29th Infantry Division landing at Omaha Beach of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. The assumption is that the codenames Omaha and Utah Beach were assigned by General Omar Bradley, named after two privates filing out of his London headquarters, one from Omaha, Nebraska, and the other from Provo, Utah. Everything at these two beaches on D-Day landings went sideways due to insufficient naval and aerial support for the amphibious landings. The Germans from high altitude and cliffs had unobstructed shots at those coming ashore. Within the first 10 hours, 60% of those that came ashore were either killed or captured. All of the DD tanks, that's a clever British invention, which had tanks which had propellers that enabled them to float, they were nicknamed Donald Duck tanks, did not survive. The sky was so overcast that Allied bombers, for fear of bombing men at the shore, bombed too far away from the German defenses, to be of any use. Many half-tracks, jeeps, and trucks foundered in deep water. Those that made it ashore soon became jammed up on the narrowing beach, making them easy targets for the German defenders. Most of the radios were lost, making the task of organizing the scattered and dispirited troops with low morale even more difficult. This old troops had lost their officers, they were bereft of heavy weapons, had only the rifles, which having been dragged through surf and sand invariably needed a very serious cleaning and drying before they could be used. After the war, the Warfield Dome paddled back to Chesapeake Bay, where her owners decided that her sailing days were over. The once-proud ship was sold to a naval scrapyard in Virginia for $8,028 even. It was then, in 1946, that agents for the Haganah heard about the ship and were convinced that they could convert her into a perfect blockade runner for their underground operation. On November 4, 1946, the Western Trading Company, which was a front for the Haganah, offered $50,000 to redeem the warfield from scrap. The economics of this deal are beyond me, as $8,029 should have done the deal, but all of my extensive research yielded no explanation. The rusting, rotting ship required a complete overhaul. A volunteer crew consisting primarily of American Jews with a Navy background tackled the job while attempting to keep their work unbeknownst to the eyes and the ears of the British. The recruits were astounded as to how the ship seemed to lack everything, from lights, to heat, to life preservers. All that had an ample supply were rats. A betting man would have been hesitant to wager if the Warfield could make it across the Atlantic. Yet the group of idealistic recruits set off on February 25, 1947, under Haganah captain Ike Aranovich. But 75 miles out, a mighty storm nearly sank the ship, causing it to hobble back to Norfolk for repairs. Whatever cover the ship had, it was now blown, and when the warfield was finally repaired four weeks later, the British shadowed the ship across the Atlantic. British Foreign Minister Bevan had made battling illegal Jewish immigration into Palestine his personal crusade. I should make a distinction here. Often I refer to the British, and sometimes I'll call it Bevan, it's more or less the same. It was British policy to ban Jewish immigration, but the architect of this plan was Ernest Bevin, who made it his personal crusade as was stated. However, when James G. MacDonald, who will become America's first ambassador to Israel, meets Bevin, he wrote afterward, I felt like I was sitting across from Hitler. And indeed, James G. MacDonald had sat across from Hitler. This gives us quite an indication of this man, meaning Ernest Bevin's, inclinations and predilections towards the Jews. When Ernest Bevin learns about the Warfield and its capacity to carry thousands of passengers, he ordered that the ship must be stopped. If ever there was an uneven match-up, albeit this is a basketball metaphor, this would be it. The Royal Navy and the hardly seaworthy Warfield played cat and mouse across the Atlantic. The British saw to it that the Haganah ship was denied the ability to refuel in the Azores. This obstacle was rendered a technicality when the Jewish sailors, in the stealth of the night, stole enough fuel to get them to Genoa, Italy. The warfield docked in Italy and secretly retrofitted a ship that was designed to hold no more than 500 to house thousands. Shells were made one on top of the other to accommodate sleeping, and defenses were made to prevent the British from boarding the boat— including connecting a fire hose to the boiler so that the intruders could be sprayed with hot oil. Meanwhile, the Haganah began to gather Jews from the closest DP camps in Germany and Poland to rendezvous with a boat that the Haganah would rename the Exodus 1947, arguably the most brilliant and evocative name ever awarded to a ship, as correspondent Ruth Gruber fittingly entitled her book The Ship That Launched a Nation. The boat arrived in the small French port of Set. Montpellier on July 9, 1947. That very evening a race against time ensued as a caravan of Haganah trucks transported 4,554 immigrants to the docks, 1,600 men, 1,282 women, 1,017 teenagers, and 655 children. The crew loaded the refugees as quickly as possible, hoping to depart for Palestine before they were stopped. As the ship docked in France to accept its underground passengers, the arch-enemy of illegal immigration, he was, of course, British Foreign Minister Ernest Bevan, learned of the boat's impending departure. He insisted that the French not allow the ship out of the port. What happened next is reminiscent of the classic Hollywood chase scene, missing only the opening of the drawbridge just as the car leaps across. As the French officials were coming down the dock, the Warfield decided to make a run for it without any navigational help. One of the American crew members jumped into the water to cut the ropes anchoring the boat, and the ship was no longer tethered, and it was now literally all on her own. The pilot boat was instructed not to assist the Warfield, meaning that the ship would have to somehow negotiate through the maze of the harbor without any tugs or navigational assistance in the dark of the night. Gingerly, the Warfield steamed out until she was grounded on a sandbar. Matters became heart-stopping, as the French police were yelling from behind, and directly in front was a French ship blocking the exit. In the interim, the warfield was going nowhere, as it was wedged into the Mediterranean floor. By turning the rudder left and then right, the captain managed to dislodge the boat, and she slinked past the French vessel obstructing her path. At dawn, the warfield cleared the harbor into free water, and a welcome committee of a British battle cruiser and five destroyers. Despite the armada, the passengers perceived that their fate was better on the Haganah ship than languishing in a DP camp. This was a very austere 10-day voyage, with well over 4,500 squeezed on a ship, built to hold less than 500. Sanitation was a very serious problem. Many were affected by diarrhea and seasickness. One woman died en route during childbirth. Her child would be privileged to make it to the land of Israel, but also would not survive and the ship's crew acted as her honor guard, as she was laid to rest at sea. Haganah headquarters radioed the ship that she has no name. This name was the suggestion of Moshe Sharet. Sharet is an important Zionist who was born in Russia. He was chiefly responsible for the formation of the Jewish Brigade within the British Army in late 1944. Sharet served as Foreign Minister of Israel from the establishment of the Provisional Government in 1948 until about 1956. For a brief period, he was also the Prime Minister, when Ben-Gurion retired, but Charette was forced to resign. The new name for the ship was the Exodus 1947. The Exodus instructions were to beach in the shallows of Tel Aviv, so that the passengers could run or swim ashore, and then blend in with the crowds. For nine days, the boat headed south, tailed by half a dozen British warships. On July 18, at 2.42 in the morning, almost everyone was asleep, the British launched a surprise attack. Floodlights drenched the deck as a loudspeaker announced that they were in Palestinian waters and were under arrest. Without waiting for a response, British destroyers rammed the ship over 50 times port and starboard as hundreds of armed British sailors prepared to board especially built wooden platforms. Those on the exodus could not defend themselves with firearms or the British would have been allowed to blow them out of the sea. By 3.05 in the morning, six British sailors managed to penetrate the fierce resistance of the Exodus's crew and passengers by using bludgeons and tear gas bombs. The passengers threw at the intruders everything they had, consisting primarily of tin cans and potatoes. On a mission to capture and subdue, the invaders continued to advance toward the wheelhouse. All aboard fought tenaciously to keep them out, and then suing melee, the British fired weapons. When dawn cracked, the horizon looked like to the Exodus, like the Normandy invasion, with His Majesty's Navy everywhere. After a bloody all-night battle on July 18, 1947, the Exodus finally surrendered. Bernard Marx, to protect his compatriot, declared that he was the captain and was arrested with three others for aiding and abetting illegal immigration. The British commandeered the ship and docked it in Haifa. Three passengers died in the struggle, including Hirsch Jakobowicz, a 15-year-old orphan, and 121 passengers were wounded. The passengers defiantly signed Hatikva as the wounded were taken to local hospitals, and Bill Bernstein, an American volunteer, died en route. Men and women were separated on the port, evoking the very worst associations to those concentration camp survivors. They were then sprayed with DDT and forcibly loaded into three prison ships under a barrage of clubs and rubber hoses. The prisoners, however, were not to be taken to nearby Cyprus, where over 25,000 illegal immigrants were languishing in camps. Master educator Bevan wished to teach a real lesson, so he had then turned all the way to France to demoralize the prisoners and to instruct the French not to defy the British will. The British decision, however, had just the opposite effect. It sparked outrage and created sympathy for the creation of a Jewish state. In Madison Square Garden, 20,000 got to memorialize the killing of American Bill Bernstein, and the death of an American really struck home. 14 days after departing on July 28, 1947, the ships arrived at Port Duboc, France. But just as Bevan thought that he had everything figured out, a snag developed. The immigrants refused to disembark, and France was only willing to accept them if they came ashore voluntarily. I presume they communicated with the other boats by shouting from the deck of one boat to the next. The British ambassadors in Paris and Washington were aghast at the horrifying embarrassment this affair was causing, but Bevan was still in education mode, and he would not budge. The British attempted to starve the immigrants off the ships, but this was as effective in breaking their will as the previous two meager daily meals that the British served their prisoners, consisting of potato soup laden with maggots. Nothing seemed to be working with this insubordinate lot who raised the flag of Israel stained with the blood of a murdered 15-year-old orphan. The pastors went on a one-day hunger strike, which really captured the media's attention. And while everyone was focused on those who had endured the horrors of the concentration camps frying under the Mediterranean summer sun, the prisoners held up a Union Jack emblazoned with a swastika. After a tension-filled month, the French were afraid of epidemics, and Supermaster Educator Bevin decided that he was really, really going to teach a lesson. He had the ships sail to Germany where he could forcibly have them removed. A full 17 days later, the prison ships arrived at a British occupied dock in Hamburg, Germany. It's my understanding that the reason it took so long was they had to first sail down the southern side of France, past Spain, go through the canal of Gibraltar, then go up Portugal, Spain, through France, and then finally work their way over to Europe which is why it took so many days. Only half the passengers disembarked peacefully, and the remainder in Germany were subjected to British brutality. Under a hail of whips and poundings, the recalcitrants were driven off the ships. In a fate that only Bevan could conceive, the 4,500 who had made every possible effort to depart the horror of Nazism were now brought to the very heart of that nightmare aboard prison trains and cattle cars that returned them to DP camps. As Conor Cruz O'Brien wrote, if Weidel had been working in collusion with the Zionist propaganda machine, it could not have contrived a more telling conclusion to the three-month saga to the passengers of the Exodus. The actual events of the ship and its failed, yet ultimately triumphal role in assisting in the creation of the State of Israel bears no correlation to Leon Uris' novel or Otto Preminger's film. Yet the latter's departure from truth is not only what novels and their films are made of, but has a redeeming factor that surpassed the blockbuster sales and box office success. We shall start with the book, then the movie, and ultimately the reality. The two most catalytic enzymes for Russian Jewry's desire and sacrifice to emigrate to Israel came about in the late 1960s. The most significant factor was the Six-Day War, which not only caught the world by surprise, but made a laughing stock out of Russia. Leading up to the War Pravda, the official Communist Party newspaper of the Soviet Union, would feature tables portraying the uneven matchup between Israel and her adversaries. Israel, with her ragtime, meager armaments, was up against modern Arab armies featuring the latest of Soviet know-how and staffed by Russian advisors. The way matters were featured, it was as pathetic as putting a 90-pound weakling in the same ring as a 250-pound heavyweight champion. But after all that hype... Israel executed a stunning victory. Russia did its best to downplay the loss, if not, like the Arabs, deny it. But the Russian Jewry Underground clandestinely listened to the VOA and the BBC. What they heard surpassed their wildest dreams. Not only had Israel been in spirit a massacre, but the tormentor of Russian Jewry had been humiliated and defeated by their own brethren in Israel. The morale of Russian Jewry was elevated. and with their backs upright they applied to emigrate to Israel with all of the inherent risks. But there was yet another factor that strengthened the resolve of Soviet Jewry at about the same time, and that was Liranurus' novel, Exodus. A digest of the book had been translated into Russian and then mimeographed in Israel. Tourists visiting Russia on behalf of the Jewish underground smuggled in copies. Through this underground network, by the end of the 1970s, the digest had been widely read and distributed further propelling the desire to emigrate to Israel. My information from this comes from the modest and heroic leader of the underground, Rabbi Eliyahu Essas. The film released in 1960, like the Haganah ship by the same name, was about Holocaust survivors who fled DP camps in order to illegally immigrate to Palestine. But that is where the parallels end. The American epic film features an ensemble cast and is regarded as having been remarkably influential in stimulating Zionism in sympathy for Israel and the United States. Music by Ernest Gold deservedly won an Academy Award. I saw the film when I was nine years old, and for all of its heart-thumping action and pathos, the only scene that I remembered was when the anti-Semitic British officer, Major Caldwell, played by Peter Lawford, informs the Hagenau officer, played by Paul Newman, disguised as an American army captain, quote, half of them, meaning the Jews, are communists. They look funny too. I can spot one a mile away." At this point, what my recall has substantiated was a truly memorable scene, Newman, initially startled, turns to his comrade and requests, quote, "...would you mind looking to my eye? There may be a cinder." No, I don't care about the Jewels one way or the other, they are troublemakers, aren't they? Well, oh, no question about it, sir. You get two of them together. You've got a debate on your hands. You're putting out a Yeah. Half of them are communists, anyway. In the other half. Looking. They look funny, too. I can spot one a mile away. Do you like looking into my eyes, sir? Do you like cinder? Mm, certainly. You know, a lot of them try to hide on a Gentile land. But one look at their face, you just know. Caldwell pronounces his colleague to be cinder-free, and Newman gives the camera a knowing look is probably worthy of some analysis as why only that scene stayed with me. Regardless, my qualifications as a movie critic are, admittedly, nil, if for no other reason because of the paucity of films that I've seen. But watching this movie again after so many decades, I struck by how 1960-ish it is, and how Newman, who seems to have had a cigarette in his mouth in a way that would have done Humphrey Bogart proud throughout the beginning of the film, seems to have kicked the habit by the second half. But undeniably, the movie compellingly conveys the struggle and the drama leading up to Israel's independence. Having discussed the novel and the film, let us now analyze what actually occurred because of the Exodus. When the commandeered boat docked in Haifa, its passengers were removed and placed on three prison ships. At that time, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, much better known as UNSCOP, was conducting their interviews regarding Palestine's future, and Aubrey Eben, much better known as later Abba Eben, persuaded four of the 11 committee members, including the chairman, to go to Haifa to see for themselves what was happening. British soldiers wielding clubs and hoses whipped the forlorn Holocaust survivors back onto the prison ships returning to Europe. Abba Eben wrote in his autobiography, the four members watched a, quote, gruesome operation. Witnessing the British brutality was an exclamation point for Ansgabh. Wherever the delegates went in Palestine, they saw elaborate military precautions—barbed wire, armored patrol cars, searchlight beams at night—all compelling evidence of a doomed political entity. If they needed any more evidence of Jewish desperation, they were informed as to how the Exodus' passengers fought hand-to-hand with the British all night on the high seas and only surrendered when the ramming of His Majesty's Navy threatened to sink the ship. The Exodus tragedy, prolonged over three months, was extensively reported upon in newspapers and around the world. Velskap members were definitely affected by this episode, and the Yugoslav delegate commented, This is the best evidence that we can have. Evidence from a boatload of passengers who, like a refugee community of 250,000 Jews in DP camps, measured their very existence against their hour of departure for Palestine. We conclude our podcast with the lyrics composed by the very famous singer and movie star, Christian Zionist Pat Boone, who sold over 45 million records and is a descendant of legendary frontiersmen who led the way for countless settlers into Kentucky and further west in the 18th century, Daniel Boone. This land is mine God gave this land to me Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem. Kudos to the History Mystery documentary, which assisted me with background on the war field, and very special thanks to Master Audio Technician Alex Drucker. Kindly subscribe, give us a five-star rating, sorry, you can't go higher, and recommend the podcast, as this will surely help. With the help of God, I know I can be strong.